Tonight's service, as you know, is all about the crucifixion of Jesus, and I titled this evening's uh, message, the, the Lamb of God, and for good reason. And as we look at this picture behind me um, uh, by, uh, let me see this, uh, Francesco de Zerberan, I think is the gentleman's name, but it's a really beautiful painting, and, um, and it shows a lamb getting ready to be, uh, to be slaughtered for the sacrifice. And now we know that Israel did this. They had their times of sacrifice and the lambs and the, the goats and the cattle. And, and they did those uh, to be faithful to the covenant that God had given them. But we know now that Christ has suffered and died on the cross and paid the price once and for all, no longer needing to sacrifice animals because those were never perfect. But there was one who was and is perfect. Jesus came And he was the one who was perfect. He was holy. He was God in the flesh. The word of God become flesh. The holy blood of God spilled on that cross. And once and for all, it was done. There's no need for any other sacrifice. No need for any other sacrifice. And so this picture fittingly shows, uh, in, in a picture form, just the reality of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, because that's exactly what he is. And we're going to be looking at that tonight. If you remember, last Sunday morning, we looked at Daniel's prophecy, Daniel's 70 weeks, and we looked at it in some detail about this wonderful prophecy in Daniel 9, verses 24 through 26, of 70 weeks being determined upon Jerusalem, and that there were 69 weeks of years, and then from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there would be literally 173,880 days. And we looked at that last Sunday, and the Lord fulfilled that. And when he wrote in Jerusalem, he held them accountable for that day. But notice what it it says now uh, in um, uh, verse 26 of Daniel's prophecy, we looked at the first uh, 24 through 25, but then it says after that 62 weeks, after that time period between the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, the 69 year, weeks of years, after that 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. And that, if you have your Bible and you have it open to Daniel, you might want to underline that because that word in the Hebrew means to literally to kill or to sacrifice, to destroy. And so literally, Messiah shall be destroyed, but not for himself. And so after that 62 weeks of years, which we celebrated last Sunday morning on Palm Sunday, how many, after that 62nd week, which is really the 69th week, how many days was it before he was crucified? Four days. Maybe five days. So after, and this is what makes this prophecy so special, because that's what we celebrate this very night. He was cut off, he was literally killed, but notice, not for himself. Jesus was not killed uh, because of anything he did wrong, and it wasn't because he had sinned. Uh, Hebrews tells us, for uh, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but notice, was in all points tempted as we are, yet, wrong wrong scripture, there we go, Uh, tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. 2 Corinthians tells us that he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yes, it was a preordained, foreordained murder of his son. And God knew, God the Father knew there was no other way to reconcile a people. He had to intervene in human history and offer himself as the spotless lamb to take away our sins. In Hebrews 7, it says that Jesus was holy, he's harmless, undefiled, there it is again, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. He is higher than the heavens. And also, Jesus was no martyr for the cause for Christianity. In every religious movement, there's somebody who was either murdered or captured and killed, and we call them martyrs, but Jesus was no martyr. He wasn't some martyr for the cause of Christianity. He willingly laid down his life, and nobody took it from him. Nobody took it from him. He was not a martyr. 
John's gospel tells us in chapter 17 or chapter 10 or verse 17, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may, uh, no one lays it down, that, uh, excuse me, let me back up with that. My tongue got tied. Has it ever happened to you? Just blah, blah, blah. <laughs> my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, Jesus says, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. I like that. That means it was no mistake. He willingly went. And let me ask you a question. Is there anybody, any founder of any group, any religion that's willing to go to the cross, to die for the sin of someone else? I don't know of any. They may have died, but to willingly die for the sin of others. I don't know of anybody who's done that except for Jesus. None of the world religions has, they don't like to talk about sin. And certainly no one is going to go to the cross and pay the price for them. Because the Bible says that the soul that sins shall surely die. That's the bottom line. But it was about four or five days after this triumphal entry that we looked at last week that... Um, that Jesus would be falsely arrested, he would be falsely arraigned, ultimately crucified, we know about that. But today is the day we commemorate Jesus' death on the cross. He was crucified, and then on, and three days later, and we'll celebrate that on Sunday, three days later, he would rise again from the grave. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad? Do you realize how much was at stake for Jesus to die. I mean, it's one thing for him to die because if all he did was die on the cross and he didn't rise again, do you realize we might as well just fold this place up and turn it into a skating rink? Seriously. If our Savior died on the cross and he didn't fulfill what God had said that he was going to do and he didn't do what he said he was going to do, then we are wasting our time. We might as well go to the bar and have a beer. Drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. <laughs> but that's not what happened, was it? In fact, as significant as his crucifixion is, when we celebrate on Sunday morning his resurrection, that is the capstone of his redemptive work on the cross. Because the fact that he did rise from the grave, it's never happened before. No one has ever risen from the grave in a resurrected body. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. And we'll look at that Sunday morning. But we call this day Good Friday. Good Friday. Open with me, if you would, uh, to your Bibles. To uh, You can either open it up or I'm going to read it to you. Uh, Matthew chapter 27. We're just going to read through this uh, quickly because I want to get this history behind us before we get into it. Notice in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 32, now what had happened before this is Jesus had been uh, falsely uh, uh, arrested. He had had these mock trials between uh, Pontius Pilate and Herod, and then finally they scourge him with a cat of nine tails, they, they, and then they put the, the crown of thorns on his head, they beat him, they put a hood over his head, beat him, to where he, he was even unrecognizable as a man. By the time he went to the cross, he was just a bloody mess. But it says, now as he came out of the praetorium, as he came out of that place of judgment, they came out, they found a man, Cyrene, uh, Simon by name, and they, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, which means uh, the place of a skull. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink because it was a, a sedative to sedate him. And, um, and, and they did that. They could keep people on the cross for days by sedating them and giving them other supports to keep them alive on the cross, or they could make it quick and just break their legs and they would suffocate pretty quickly. But um, he, when he tasted it, he knew what it was. He didn't take it. He took the full brunt of the punishment, and let me, ex let me say this to you, as much as the movies and all of that stuff talks about his physical brutal killing, and it's horrible, don't get me wrong, I don't want to minimize the human element of the beatings, the floggings, the cutting of the back and the head and all of that, but do you understand that many people had gone through that in Roman history, in, in world history, but there's only one who not only did that, but on the cross, 
He literally became, his soul became an atonement for every single human being that would ever be born. Your sin and my sin, from the moment we were born until the day we take our last breath, for all of humanity was paid for once and for all on the cross. God the Father pouring out judgment on his Son and turning away for the first time in all of Jesus' existence, which has been for eternity because he's always lived with the Father. For the first time, he turns his back on his son. And let me suggest to you that that was probably the reason he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's never experienced that separation between this communion between him and his father, but ah, he did on the cross for a time. And I think that was more painful to him than the physical scars that he was, the, the bloody mess that he was. But notice, they crucified him. They divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. And then sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put over his head the accusation written against him, which was this. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Actually, if it would have been better if they said the king of all creation. <laughs> he's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of all creation. All creation. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right side, one on the left. And those who had passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy uh, the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is king of the king of Israel, let him come, now come down from the cross, and then we will believe him. And the truth of the matter is, no matter what Jesus did, they would not believe him. He, provided, he did miracles in their midst, and they still would not believe him. Because seeing is not believing. Because believing comes to hearing. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of God. And these guys had seen much, but it didn't change one iota of their heart. There's the difference. So don't be seeking miracles to believe. Trust in the word of God and believe in him. That's all you got to do. And they said, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from about the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No doubt leading everybody to Psalm 22. Every Jew there, when he said that, they knew it was a tip-off. Go check out Psalm 22, guys, because it talks about them piercing my hands and, my, and running hands through my nails and my feet when crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. And some of those who stood by said, they, he said, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And the other gospels tell us what he said. His very last words was, it is finished. Do you know that your sin has been accounted for? It's been paid for and finished? It's an accounting term, and you all know this. To tell us, day I. Paid in full. It's when you go to the mortgage, and we're, pretty soon we're going to get that mortgage paper back from the bank, and it's going to have a big red stamp. Paid in full, and we're going to rejoice, and we're going to mount it, and we're going to put a light on it. No, I'm only kidding. And uh, it's going to be a great day. Paid in full. Your sin, my sin, was paid in full. He said the term, he meant it, and he screamed it with every bit of guts that he had left, every bit of breath that he had, like a man it is finished, and he's, I won't do it here because I'll blow the speakers. With everything he had, and so when the satyrian and those were with him who were guarding Jesus, and then, the, uh, actually, i I, I got to back up here to, um, uh, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He yielded it, notice. And then from the, the veil of the temple was torn, notice, from top to bottom, and this is a thick curtain, folks. It's actually a couple curtains put together, but it's a thick garment. It's a thick piece of fabric, and it was torn from top to bottom. Who could have done that? God. He's the one who tore that veil. 
And the earth quaked, it said, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Certainly not in a resurrection body like you and I and like Jesus has, um, but they rose, and, and they would die again, of course. But coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And, many. and so when the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, This truly was the Son of God. And see, folks, this is why we call it Good Friday. It's good for us. Good for us because the spotless Son of God Jesus Christ, he took upon himself the sin of us all, paid the price. And only through him are we able to go to heaven. You know, there is no other way to go to heaven. You can't do enough good works. You can't give enough money to the church. There's nothing we can do, folks. We can't just do our best and somehow think that our good works will be enough for us to get to heaven. No, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. That means there's no other way. If there was, Jesus wouldn't have to gone to the cross if there was some other way. And didn't he pray that in the Garden of Gethsemane? While he was there praying and sweating as, you know, sweating as, as if there were great drops of blood coming off of him? He said, Father, if there's any other way, I'm not looking forward to this separation between you. I'm not looking forward to this process, but not my will, your will be done. And Jesus knew that that was the Father's will. That's why it was so hard. But notice, even though it was excruciating for Jesus, it was very good for us because of what he did on our behalf. But when he cried, it is finished, there was a joy and the Bible tells us that for who the joy that was, or for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus' death, we know, was substitutionary, meaning he substituted himself in our place, bore our sin and judgment. The holy for the unholy, the guilt, the guiltless for the guilty. And notice I said earlier that he's the spotless lamb of God. He's spotless. Now what does that mean? And where do we get that word from? Where does that phrase come from? And why spotless or without blemish? Have you ever stopped to think about that? I mean, as you're reading through the Old Testament, and we're going to look at some passages now to show Jesus being the lamb of God, why spotless? Why without blemish? God was drawing a picture, and even back in the Old Testament prophecies, he's drawing a picture of the Lamb of God, who would come, who would come. Now, you know that um, yesterday, the Jewish people all over the world began to celebrate Passover. Open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. We're not going to read the entire chapter. We're going to look at a few things here. Notice in Exodus chapter 12, after the, right before Pharaoh finally let the children of Israel go out of Egypt, the Lord instituted the Passover and he would have a death angel pass over Egypt. And, 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 and let's just read it. I, you guys already know this, but let's read it together. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be a beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father. Notice, a lamb for a household. And this all makes, uh, is kind of, for the Jew at that time, they didn't understand what this was all about. We've gotten so used to the Passover. But they tell them, on the tenth day of the first month, take a lamb, right? And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your account for the lamb. And notice verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. <laughs> there it is. Without blemish, a male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. 
And it's important that we don't miss this detail. This is a very important detail because the lamb had to be flawless. It had to be spotless, without blemish. God would not accept as worship a lamb that was sick or blemished in some way, maimed in some way. It had to be the very best. And isn't it true, as I read this and I think about that, and I think about the way they were thinking too, the very best they want to reserve for them. The very best lamb they want to reserve for them. But God says, no, you give the very best to me first. And there's something about this to me that is so interesting as far as worship is concerned. It's a challenge, actually. You know, do we give the Lord the first fruits, the best of what we have? Not, not that you have to give all of it, of course, but do we give him the leftovers and the things that really don't matter anymore, the used things that nobody really wants? We give that to the church, you know. We've had a lot of people over the years, and they mean well, but they'll, they'll say, hey, you know, I got this piece of junk I'd like to give to the church. And we're like, well, we don't really want your junk either. <laughs> I, lo- I love your heart and the fact that you want to give us a a new, uh, you know, whatever it is, but look at it. it it's, it's got a wobbly thing on the front, and it, you have to wiggle the wire to, to get it to work. And, and think about that. If you had to stand before God and offer him something, would you bring him the squeaky wheeled thing that has a cord on it that can't, you know, that every now and then it'll start? None of us would do that. I mean, think about it. If Almighty God was to show up, and I'm not asking for an offering, okay? <laughs> We're not going to play that nonsense. I'm not here to guilt you, but I am here to, to challenge you in the way we think about our giving, the way we worship God. You give the very best. Give the first fruits of what you have. And that's really uncomfortable for me to say because we live in a culture and many churches take advantage of people with this kind of stuff. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell you the truth. And it challenges me because I have done that so often in my life. I've given the Lord the leftovers of my strength instead of the first fruits of my strength. I've given him whatever's after I've had all my entertainments for the month and I've rented movies and I've done this and had my fun and then I have, oh, I got $20 I can give to the Lord. And the Lord is like, well, why don't you give to me a tenth of what you have before you, when you first get paid. And then learn to gauge yourself on the rest. And that's a challenge, isn't it? But that's an example. Give to the Lord the best of your strength, not the leftovers. And even though Jesus wasn't crucified in his first year, because he would be a baby when that happened, he was the firstborn of Mary, and later on in verse 46 in Exodus 12, it says concerning the Passover lamb that not one of its bones should be broken. And do you know that it tells us in John's gospel, chapter 19, it tells us in verse 32 that when the soldiers came, they broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And that was a prophecy of long ago. They didn't break his legs because he was already dead. They didn't need to. They would break the legs to quicken the process because they had dinners and family to have fun with. It was the Passover. They wanted to get home to dinner. They wanted to get this over with so they can go home and clean up and, and have lamb. But here in Exodus, or I'm sorry, in, in verse 5 of chapter 12 of Exodus, we get a foreshadowing, don't we, of the type of the great sacrificial lamb that would come. Jesus Christ. And Abraham himself saw this. You recall in Genesis chapter 22, God uh, told Abraham, he was uh, trying him. He said, Abraham, take your son, your only son, and go up onto the mountain that I'll tell you of and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Number one, it was forbidden by God for human sacrifice. That's what the pagans did. So Abraham had to trust the voice of God. And not only did he trust the voice of God, he followed through with it. And you remember, it came to pass after these things, this is Genesis 22, that God tested Abraham, said, Abraham, and he says, here I am. 
He says, take your only son and, and, uh, and go and to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. And notice, but Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, uh, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac knew very well that to make a sacrifice, you needed a lamb. And little did he know that he was the lamb. <laughs> he was going to be the one that's going to be sacrificed. And he says, look, there's, there's wood, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said, notice, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. They came to the place that God had told them. Abraham built the altar, put the wood in order, bound his son on the altar. Now think about this. His son is at the prime of his life, and this older man is tying his son. And can you imagine the son? The Bible doesn't say that there was a big fight. The son willingly allowed him to do it because there's no mention of it. There's no mention of any struggle. He probably didn't understand. He's like, well, whatever, God, I, you know, Dad, I don't, I don't know what you're doing here. But these ropes are getting kind of uh, you know, tight on the skin. And I think he knew. And Abraham, remember, he rose that blade up over his chest and he was about ready to plunge it in. And, and the Lord intervened. And Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And said, he says, here I am, thank God. <laughs> Can you imagine that? You're about ready to do it. And, and this is the thing, folks. He was ready to do it. Put yourself in his sandals. <laughs> Dads, put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a moment. He was going to go through with it. So as he was reaching up like that, the angel had to interrupt him soon enough before he put all his weight into the knife and would plunge it into the chest of his son. The angel called out and he said, Do not lay your hands on the lad or do anything to him, for I know now that you fear God. Now, did God know beforehand that he feared God? Yes, but there's something about putting the person, putting Abraham to that test. There was no way for Abraham to know. It had to be completed and God wanted to see it. He wanted to see, does he trust me? Will he follow through? And he followed through. He was obedient. Do not lay your hand on the lad. Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and there, behold, a ram was caught in a thicket by its horns. And so Abraham went, took the ram, and he offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son Isaac. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. And it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, this was a substitute, wasn't it? The lamb. Can you see the, the perfect, or it's not a perfect type, but it's a pretty good type of what happened. Here's one father about ready to sacrifice his son. God intervenes, provides a substitute And then God says, he even names that place, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. In other words, you are going through something here that's really going to happen about a few thousand years later on the same exact spot. Except there's not going to be a ram caught in the thicket this time. There's not going to be a substitute. Jesus will be the substitute. Now there's going to be a father who really is going to put to death his only begotten son, to pay the price. Do you see how wonderful that is? Instead of the ram being a substitute, now the son himself was the substitute. It was almost like a play. It was almost like he was going through the motions before it happened. And even John the Baptist Remember in John, John's Gospel, John the Baptist said this. He said he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was early in Jesus' ministry. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. But John the Baptist knew from the Holy Spirit, He's the Lamb. Why would he call him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Well, maybe he read Isaiah 53. Maybe he read some of the Psalms. 
Hebrews wasn't available for him, but what does it say in Hebrews? It tells us that Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come. This is Hebrews 9, verse 11. Uh, of good things to come, which the, uh, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the, pl- of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot (laughs) there it is again without spot a lamb without spot it's littered all over the all over the the bible to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living god in first peter chapter 1 verse 18 it says knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There it is again. The Old Testament told us that he was the lamb. We're going to see it in just a moment. But Jesus is the lamb. Look at, uh, go with me to Isaiah 53. Some have said this is the holy of holies of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, a great chapter to look at tonight. We're just going to read through it. But again, Jesus here is prophesied as the Lamb of God that was to come. So here it's prophesying that he's yet to come. Because Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus would be born. And it says in verse 3, let's look at verse 3. He, speaking of this suffering servant, who we now know as Jesus, he is despised and rejected by men. As we read through this, I want you to recall the passages in the Gospels when Jesus was on the cross and the things leading up to the cross because it's a perfect picture of what happened there. Again, written 700 years before it would come to pass. He was a man of sorrows, verse 3 says says, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Aren't you glad that he carries your griefs and sorrows? I don't know about you, but when I'm hurting, when I'm, when I'm uh, frustrated, when I'm angry, and I'm, I'm just undone, where do you go? Well, some people have other vices. They, they go to the bottle. They go to a relationship. They call a friend. They, they smoke something illegal. Whatever it is, they, they do whatever they can to kill that thing that is hurting them. They want to quell the, the hurt. And where can we go, family? I hope you go to him often when you're struggling, when your mind is freaking out over the events of the day. Can you go to Christ and say, Lord, I'm so heartbroken I don't understand any of this stuff, and it's really killing me inside. He's like, I know. I know, Rob. Just hang in there. I've got this under control. I know going, you, you, you know what I've told you in the Word, and, and you know what's coming, Rob, but I know that going through the process is hard. But I'm going to be with you through that process. Don't you worry. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Well, yet we've... Um, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Notice that, stricken and smitten by God. God pouring out wrath upon his son, turning his back, because God cannot look upon sin. He turned his back on his son for a time. He was afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, and you might want to underline that word because in our English Bible it says stripes, plural, but in the Hebrew it's a singular noun. And what is the stripe? What is the single blow? Jesus received many blows, didn't he, by the Romans? But what is the one blow? From God the Father. The one strike against his son placing it all upon him. And you know, folks, I, you know, we, we talk about this and it, it's hard to understand. But can you imagine? When, when you sin and you feel guilty and you feel horrible and you know you've done something wrong and you have the guilt and the knowledge of it, think about every sin that could ever be done by any human being that's ever been born 
All of that in one fell swoop, in one action. On Christ. I can't imagine that. I, I can't fathom it. But he was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes or stripe we are healed. And all we like sheep, there is that sheep thing again. Why does the Bible keep doing that? Because it's, quite, it's telling us many years in advance what was going to happen. But we're all like sheep. We've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, speaking of Christ, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. And here it is again. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And that literally happened as he stood before Herod or Pilate. And he's like, Don't you, are you going to say something? Don't you know I have the power to... You know, to crucify you, I have the, the power to put you to death. And Jesus says, you don't have any power at all, except it was given to you by my Father in heaven. Ooh. I bet Pilate felt like that about, you know, about that moment. And, he, and he's trying to backtrack. But he was taken from prison, from judgment. And who will declare his generation? He was cut off. He was literally killed from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked. With those two men, he made his grave with the wicked, and but with the rich at his death. Joseph of Arimathea gave his tomb. A very wealthy man placed Jesus. Him and Nicodemus both, they wrapped the body of Jesus and they put it in this very wealthy man's tomb. But it's okay. It would only be there for the weekend. Right? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And why did it, what that means is, is it pleased the Lord to, to bruise him or to crush him. It sounds kind of twisted, doesn't it? But it satisfied him. It satisfied the Father to do this. It was the only thing that could satisfy his holy, righteous requirement. So it pleased him. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, the pleasure of the Lord shall be in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. When you think about what happened to Christ on the cross and you read that passage, you can't escape what happened there. And all told in advance. Really, any Jewish person had no way of saying, I didn't know that this was him. Even the religious leaders, they all should have known. And see, that's the maddening, the maddening thing about sin, isn't it? It can take what we know already and totally twist it to where we can't even see the truth anymore. And that's when a heart gets hardened. That's when a conscience becomes seared. When you knew the truth, but now you don't know it because it's blind to you because you've given yourself over to sin. And there comes a point where God allows that. And that's a scary place for a human being to be. And I, I know most of you in this room, have, you didn't have to experience that because you're here. It's the people out there that I'm more concerned about because they have no clue. They have no desire. They don't believe that they, they're doing anything wrong. They're better than their neighbor, they would say. So I guess God's got to accept me. No, he doesn't have to accept you. Only in Christ can he accept you. You are not a Christian unless you are in Christ. Unless the Spirit of God has indwelt you, you are not a Christian. Peter said that. You're not a Christian unless you are born again. It doesn't matter how much money you've given. It doesn't matter the good works that you have done. If the Spirit of God is not in you, you are none of His. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Again, in Revelation 5, Jesus is now going to be the revealed Lamb of God. So now we have Isaiah, and, and, and also in Genesis 22, 
Abraham, the action with him and Isaac, and then we, we had of the, of the Lamb of God, and then we had Isaiah 53 talking about the Lamb of God who would, be, who would come. And then Jesus finally in the, in the present, in the Gospels, he, he fulfills that very clearly, very poignantly, and now looking forward in the future, in Revelation 5, it says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, God the Father, with a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? And we're going to sing this song at the end. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And John says, So I wept much because I found no one worthy to open this. Or to look at it, but one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, verse 6, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, notice how Jesus is portrayed in glory at this time, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And who is the one who's seated, seated on the throne? It's God the Father. And the Lamb of God. And Jesus is portrayed here as the Lamb of God. The Lamb who was slain. And then verse 11, notice, it says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Emphasis mine. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as in the earth and the sea and all that are in them. I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Do you see how wonderful that is? He's the Lamb of God. This plan of redemption began even before Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden. What does it tell us in Revelation 13, verse 8? It tells us this, that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What? Do you mean that before the foundation, before Genesis 1, verse 1, when God says, and, and God uh, you know, created the heavens and the earth and all of that, when he, the creation week, are you saying that before that he already had a plan in place? Yes. Are you saying that he foreknew that Adam and Eve would sin in the garden? Absolutely. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And I don't know about you, but I like a God who knows all things. You can't hoodwink him. Try playing chess with God. Try playing backgammon. You're going to lose. <laughs> he knows everything before it happens. And he anticipates and knows what's coming and, and puts in place things. And it says that before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was already in God's mind. And Jesus, the, the, the Logos, the Word of God, knew back before Genesis 1 verse 1, this is what we got to do. Because we're going to give them free will to choose me or to reject me. And I know eventually they're going to reject me. And it didn't take long, did it? And God says, we got, I'm going to make sure that I can redeem this people that I love, that I've created in my image. I am going to redeem them. I'm going to put a plan in place before it even begins. And I'm not going to tell them about it yet. I'm going to wait. And what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? And they knew they were naked. The Bible tells us that God provided skins for them. Because they were naked. They were naked and ashamed, and then God provided skins. But what has to happen in order to put a skin on somebody? You've got to kill an innocent animal. And God did that in the garden. Wouldn't it be interesting if it was a lamb? 
If it was a sheep of some kind, it'd be interesting. The Bible doesn't tell us what animal it was. If I was a betting man, and I'm not, I'm putting my money on the sheep. But this idea of Jesus as a Lamb of God is all throughout the Bible. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to finish up this part of it. It says, Now it shall come to pass... Uh, and now uh, you shall keep it, this Passover, so you get the lamb on the 10th day, and you hang on to it, you have it in your house, until the 14th day of the same month, so ten or four days later, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the house where they eat. And notice the action of this Notice that the action of this in blood on the door and on the side posts, it foreshadows the cross. If you were to take hyssop, and that's what it tells us later on that they did, they dipped this bushy plant into a little container of blood, and they would take it, and they would hit the lentil of the doorpost, and then they would go like this for the side posts. And what does that obviously show you? Even before it was even invented, the, the, the type was there. It was a, a cross made of blood. And that's no coincidence. There's no coincidences in the Bible. God foreshadowing all of these things, and these things you know. But there are many who don't know. And there, and you know what it says. Uh, we'll, We'll read it here. Then they shall eat the flesh of that lamb that they sacrificed on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, there's no yeast in it. Leaven is always a type of sin. They would eat it with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs that they may eat it. And do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its leg and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And why do we call it the Passover? It tells us, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I am Jehovah, is what he said. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, now here's the thing, when God sees the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land. Isn't that wonderful? So, if you're inside the house where the blood has been applied with the shape of a cross, if you are inside that house, if you are covered by the blood, you are safe. If you are not covered by the blood, then your firstborn of that household would die. And see, that's how Egypt was spoiled. And that's how Pharaoh's firstborn, who would inherit the throne of his kingdom, was killed that very night. And that was the very thing that broke Pharaoh. He finally said, because if you read you know, chapters 7 through 12, they'd done many things trying to convince Pharaoh to let them go, to go worship and to leave. And he said no. But this one thing, God was mastering this man who was seated on the throne in Egypt. And finally he said, okay, then I'm going to take your firstborn son if you do not let my people go. And in his stiff-neckedness, in his hard-heartedness, in his brutish anger against the Jews, he said, no way. And God says, okay. All right, Jews, you better put the blood on your door because I'm passing over tonight. And it was because of that that Pharaoh said, I have had enough with you people. There is not a bus or a van line that can get you out of here quick enough. Take all of your stuff and get out tonight. And they spoiled the Egyptians. They gave them silver and gold. And they didn't even have time to to let their bread be, um, to have yeast to grow because they had to eat it quickly. And God told them through this whole meal that they're going to eat, you've got to have your staff in your hand because after you eat, you guys are going to be out of here. Get ready for your journey. You're going to eat. It's fast food tonight. You're going to go through the drive through
Yes, you shall eat it. So let me ask you something. Will you humble yourself and come under the blood of Christ and be saved? Those Jews who did that faithfully, being obedient. All it was was obedience. It wasn't like they had to jump through some hoop. It wasn't like they had to give enough money. It wasn't like they had to you know, sign over the deed to their house to the church. No, it was none of that. It just says, will you just do what I ask? It's that simple. Will you just be obedient and you will live? And see, that's what it's all about, folks. It's all about us being obedient to Jesus. And when we are obedient, there are blessings for obedience. And there's also curses for disobedience. And I don't know about you, but I've lived enough of my life before I came to Christ. And even after I've given my heart to Christ, I've lived enough of my life doing things that I know aren't right and suffering the consequence. When will I learn the lesson? When will you learn the lesson? Isn't it true? We, it's insanity. That's what sin is. The same consequence, that's what insanity is, doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a better result. It never comes. There's always something to be, there's a bill that has to be paid eventually. So what has been the effect of the cross of Christ on your life? I look out tonight and I know that most of you already have done that. And praise the Lord for that. But some of you I don't recognize. And what about you? Have you embraced Christ and his atonement for you on the cross, or have you made fun of it all your life? Have you rejected Christ and his work on the cross, saying, ah, it's just a bunch of stories, children's stories? No, they're not stories. It's history, folks. Not only does the Bible speak of these truths of Jesus' death, but even secular history proves that he died on the cross. It proves that he rose again from the grave. Are you broken? Are you humbled? Is God breaking you? Is God humbling you right now, even tonight? Are you believing in Christ? Are you still religious and proud? Is your heart still hardened? Are you still living in unbelief? Is that where your heart is? See, being a religious person is not good enough. And this is not going to sit well with some, but it's the truth. There are a lot of religious people in hell tonight. A lot of religious people who thought that they, if they just followed the creed of the church, that they would be fine. If they got baptized as an infant, they're in. No, it's not about that at all. It's about a personal relationship with Christ. You can't get there any other way but through him. It has to be about him. There's no other way. What is the promise of Jesus? What did he say? He says, come to me. And here's the thing tonight I want to share with you. Come to Christ. He says, Jesus says, and and think of this as his invitation to you tonight. You know, we've looked at the Lamb of God throughout the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. He's the Lamb of God. What have you done with that? What are you doing with that? Jesus says, come to me, all who are you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty heavy laden these days. I don't know about you, but I'm laboring I mean, my job, I, I mean, I get to, most of my time is sitting. <laughs> I got my Bible in my hand. The most exercise I get is going from the bathroom back and forth because I drink coffee all day and water. That's all the rest, that's all the labor I'm doing mainly other than this, you know, the things that are going on in my heart. Sometimes I, you know, that's bad enough some days. But come to him. What, what, what's, what's on your heart? What are you laboring? And you've got to hear the compassion of Christ in it. He's like, I know you're struggling. Some people more than others. You're hurting. You're frustrated. Things are not working out the way you wanted. Your relationship with your spouse is not so good. Your kids have left you. They don't want anything to do with you. They're prodigals. And your own walk is not going so well. You find yourself dabbling in things that many years ago you had left behind, but now they're starting to creep back, and you find yourself in the same old vices that you gave up many years ago, and now things are coming back to haunt you, and now you find yourself dabbling in things that you know you shouldn't be dabbling in. 
And the Lord is saying, I still love you. Will you come to me? I'm not angry with you. You're making a mess of your own life, but you don't have to. Will you come to me and let me have all those things? Will you lay down your burdens, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me? How, how can you learn from him? Well, you read his word. You, you live with him in you. You allow him to live in you. As a Christian, don't you want Christ to live in you and then through you? Yes, we do. And we do that simply by yielding to him, by praying to him, by having a relationship. Isn't a relationship speaking with somebody? It's not just I put in my five minutes in my devotional and I do my work and I, and I, don't, talk to, I don't even talk to him the rest of the day. I, I gave him five minutes today. Well, what kind of relationship would you have with somebody with, for five minutes a day? Now, the obvious exhortation is to spend time with them. Get in the Word. Wake up earlier if you have to. Take a break during the day. Stay up a little later. Get up a little earlier. Get in the Word. Get in prayer. Join a prayer group. Come to Bible study. I'm learning about Jesus, and I'm loving every bit of it because I'm learning more of His heart. I'm learning more of who He is. And as I get this wonderful privilege to share with all of you a few times a week. I, I, I'm like the first partaker of, of that fruit. I, he, he gives me that, and I'm so blessed. I can't tell you how it's enriched my life. And I pray it does for you too. I pray that you receive that and that you do it yourself and that you will come to find that peace and that rest in your own heart in a world where there is no rest, there is no peace for now. But do you know that it's coming? Do you know that it's coming? What we're going through right now, it may get a little, it may get worse for us here, but guess what, folks? There's coming a time. We're going to be caught up together with him in the clouds, transformed with a resurrection body. I, I'm looking forward to that. But that's not going to happen if you're not a Christian. But the real Passover lamb was slain nearly 2,000 years ago. So have you received Christ and do you want to? Do you want to receive Christ tonight? You can. Do you know how quickly you can receive Christ? Just in a, in, a, in a crowd like this, there can be somebody, and maybe it's you tonight. You've already, in your heart, you're, you've already made the commitment. Maybe before you came in here, you were uh, distracted by a lot of things, and you didn't know what to expect, but you're like, you know what, I want that. And you know, do you realize that that is as simple as it can be, because the work is already done. God has already wooed your heart, and he's already got you. You can go through the sinner's prayer and confess your sin. I'd recommend doing that. But when that transfer takes place, you will know it. I remember the day. And it was a beautiful day. Do you want to receive him? Let me share one more thing with you and then we're going to finish with one last song. You know, there, there are many people who think, well, they have a religious mind and they think, well, I've got to do all of these things. You know, God gave us the Ten Commandments and we're, if we do those, then we'll go to heaven. But do you know that that's not true? The Ten Commandments were given to prove that we couldn't do them. In fact, the Bible says that the law was given as a, as a tutor to bring us to Christ. It was meant as a, as a schoolmaster to bring us into a full relationship with Christ. So the law couldn't get me there. Only Christ could get me there. But a lot of people think, well, if I just do these things. But the Bible says that all, you know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I just do these things, then I can receive this forgiveness and this salvation. But do you know, and I'd have you read this tonight on your own, read Exodus 12 again, and I want you to notice something. What happened first? The Feast of Unleavened Bread, when they would hide all of the yeast in the house, and yeast is a, is a, is a symbol, if you will, a type of sin. They would put away those things that are sinful. Did they do that first and then receive the lamb that was sacrificed? Is that the order that it occurred in? No, it's not. What was the order that occurred? First, the lamb was sacrificed. And then as a result of that forgiveness, of that salvation, then 
they would hide the, 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 the yeast. And they did that for seven days. They ate unleavened bread. So what's the, what's the point of all that? Don't try to do anything to come to Christ. Come to Christ and let him do the work afterwards. You can't earn it. You can't go through these motions and, accept, and, and, and receive Christ. I mean, you can. He's not going to forbid you. But if you're trying to get there on your own works, it's not going to happen. But notice in Exodus 12, the lamb was sacrificed first. Put your faith in the lamb, Christ, the sacrifice. And then the process of sanctification then begins, doesn't it? Doesn't, isn't that what the Bible tells us? This is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is a process that takes a lifetime. Because if I had to wait for a lifetime of sanctification, hoping that I was good enough, and then finally receiving Christ, oh God, I did all this stuff, please accept me. And he's like, oh, I don't, not feeling it today, Rob. No, he gets rid of that in the beginning. He goes, trust in that, trust in me for my sacrifice. Have you done that? Yes, Lord, I have. Okay. You're free to move about the cabin. <laughs> You're free to move about. Your, your forgiveness and salvation has been granted to you. Now, what do we do with that? We continue to be sanctified, don't we? Day by day, moment by moment. We walk in this life and we're, the Lord is sanctifying us, isn't he? I don't know about you, but that would, that's got to set somebody free here tonight. Because you've been trying so hard all your life to earn it. And God says, you don't have to earn it. Just believe in me and my sacrifice. In my sacrifice, Jesus says, I'll take care of the rest. Don't try to clean up your drug habit. Don't try to clean up your gambling habit and your, your adultery and your fornication. Don't try to get all that right and then somehow come to me in your squeaky cleanness, even though you're filthy, and accept me and, and, try, and, and think that I'm going to accept you because of all the stuff that you've done. No, he goes, just the opposite. Come to me when you're a complete mess. I came to Christ when I was a complete and utter disaster. I couldn't have been more of a mess. And I came to him, and then he started, he cleansed me, but he was also cleansing me little by little. Isn't that wonderful? He was sanctifying me, and see, that's what he does. So don't let anything get in your way. Come to the Lord when you are at your worst. Don't wait until you polish yourself up. You can't polish yourself up good enough. Come to him with the mess and don't be ashamed, right? Come to him with your mess. Come to him with all of the mess, with all of the bugs and all the ticks, with all the scars and all the ugly, horrible, filthy, ugly things, the good, the bad, and the ugly Come to him with all of it. He says, I can take it. I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to give you salvation. And now, with that, oh my goodness, <laughs> to know to be forgiven by a holy God, what does that do to you? It changes everything, doesn't it? it changes everything. So if you're of that... If you're in that place tonight, I would encourage you. You don't need me. You don't need anybody in this room. But if you'd like to pray to receive Christ, you can do it right now. Even as we sing this last song, if the worship team could come on up, we're going to sing this last song. But you know what? If, you are, if that is your heart's desire, if you've been trying for so long, just, just surrender to the Lord tonight. Don't wait for anything. You don't need to wait for a single thing. You don't have to give anything. You have to just give your heart to Him. That's all you've got to do. There's nothing left. There's nothing else. And don't try to clean up your act. Come to him with your mess and let him clean you up. He does a much better job. And he is happy to do it, by the way. You know why? Because he loves you with an everlasting love. It's a love like, unlike anything you've ever known. And it's not dependent upon your and my performance. I like that. Because I'm not a very good performer. And I've made a lot of mistakes. Even as a Christian, I've made a lot of mistakes. And God says, don't come to me and worry about trying to clean up your mess. You just come to me. I'll take care of it all. Trust me. Is his blood sufficient or not? If it is, then it will. It'll, it'll be enough. And it is enough. There's nothing else you can do. Just simply believe. Even a child can do it. And I pray for any children here today, any small ones, 
that have heard this simple message. It's a simple message. There's a lot to it. But just give your heart to Jesus today. He loves you more than you could possibly know. He wants to bless your life. He wants to bless you, not curse you. He's totally in love with you from the very beginning. What did he tell Jeremiah? What did he say to Jeremiah? He says, Jeremiah, before you were even formed in the womb, I knew you. Before you're the, the egg and the, you know, the sperm, before they even came together and united, before that even happened, before you were even conceived, I knew your life. I knew what you were going to do, and I had ordained you a prophet for the nations. What? <laughs> awesome, isn't it? Yeah, let's stand together. Let's worship. Again, we're just going to do this uh, one last song, and it, was, uh, it actually comes from that passage that we were looking at tonight in, in Revelation chapter 5. When the Lamb of God, Christ, goes before the throne, he takes that scroll out of the hand of his Father on the throne. And John wept, who is worthy to do this? And he wept, because at that time it was a real thing. He didn't know who was worthy. And the Lamb who was worthy came. There's only one who's worthy. Amen. Uh, is he worthy? Yes. To receive all glory and honor and praise and power. And, oh, it's just so wonderful. to Lift up the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Uh, pray that you come back uh, Sunday morning and join us as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, and just go with us, go before us, Lord, and just bless our weekend, Father, with the family, and help us to remember always what you've done for us, and Lord, uh, the price that was secured uh, for our salvation, Lord, such a profound thing, and yet um, you've made it simple, Lord, and so um, be glorified in this place and encourage our gatherings. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. God bless.